We're almost at the end of this walk, the one that started at the intersection of Fifth and Jackson here in Gary, Indiana. The walk we'd been taking south along Jackson Street toward a specific address, 1151 Jackson Street. It's a place I've revisited a lot of times in my mind, but it's a lot colder in the real setting. I've been here before. That was almost 14 years ago. That visit was in the summer. It was probably 60 degrees warmer than it is today, in February 2022. I was here on this street the first time I tried to tell Lyman's story. That was when I was working as a reporter for ESPN. And I wasn't the only one trying to tell the story. Not even the only one working for the same company. This was a really big story for me. And it was, uh, I was haunted by Lyman Bostock. And I don't know why, but I really was. I was haunted by Lyman Bostock. And I really wanted to write this story. That's the writer and author, Jeff Perlman, who was also working on a story about Lyman and about Leonard Smith, the man who killed him. Perlman is a New York Times bestselling author many times over. He's also an outstanding reporter. And the more he reported on this story, the more his admiration for Lyman as a player grew. Lyman Bostock was just a really, really good hitter. Like a really, really good hitter. He wasn't quite Carew at that point. He wasn't quite a Tony Gwynn. But he was, you could see him heading in that direction where he would have been a guy who put together a bunch of 320, 330 seasons, you know, 210, 215 hit kind of seasons, a bunch of all-star games. Perlman also learned more about Lyman as a man. His reporting unearthed different anecdotes, ones I'd never seen anywhere before or since, including this story about the Yankees trying to recruit Lyman informally after he left the Twins and was a free agent. It's after 77, and Lyman is mowing his lawn, and uh, a limousine pulls up. And the Yankees did this kind of stuff. A guy shows up, and he looks like he's a hitman. He's wearing a, you know sunglasses and a suit. Lyman Bostic has no idea who he is, and the guy's basically like, I'm with the Yankees. I'm going to hand you this check for $200,000. You don't have to sign with us, but if you want to, great. It's just in good faith. He wasn't going to take $200,000 from the Yankees, not sign with the Yankees, and cast a check. It just wasn't who the guy was. Roman's story also came with discoveries and details about Lyman's death. Details that only made it more heartbreaking. In one example... Perlman discussed finding a man who was in the ICU at Mercy Hospital the night Lyman was brought in after he was shot. He was a guy, he was in Indiana. He had been in the hospital because he got crushed between two railroad cars. He's in the hospital for a long time. And one day they bring in this patient. They wheel him in, it doesn't look good, and he's covered in, in blood and his bandages and his forehead is all taped up. And Paul says to the nurse, you know, ma'am, who is that guy? And like, that's Lyman Bostock. She's like, who? And he's like, I, don't know, I think he's one of the best hitters in the American League. And his bed is next to Lyman Bostock's bed. And he's hooked up to a monitor and it's beep, beep, beep. And this guy said he actually all of a sudden it goes beep. And the people come rushing in. And he was the witness to Lyman Bostock's death. And the story of Lyman's death led Perlman to the same place it led me, and to the same person. 
he wanted to find and talk to Leonard Smith. Perlman found out where Leonard was living, in the same three-story brick apartment building he'd been living in for the last 30 years, 1151 Jackson Street. Perlman found the address and drove there. And I was sitting outside his house, and I remember it was this really rundown building in the middle of nowhere in Gary, Indiana, which is not a very safe city. And I remember sitting out there and just sitting and sitting and debating whether to knock on his door and really, really nervous about it. And I would open the car door and close it and open the car door and close it. And I finally decided I'm not doing it. Like I'm, I'm not doing it. And I've never not knocked on a door since Leonard Smith's house. I swear to God, I've never not knocked on a door because I was so freaking mad at myself seeing you get to talk to Leonard Smith. And I really kept thinking, like, if this guy's going to shoot me, nobody's going to find me for five or six days because it's just the grass is overgrown and it's the middle of nowhere. And it's a, but I've always regretted, in this very strong way, regretted not knocking on Leonard Smith's door. I didn't knock on Leonard's door either that summer day when I was there in 2008. But I didn't have to. Leonard pulled up outside in his faded blue four-door sedan. He was coming home after shopping for groceries. I knew right away it was him. But the encounter unfolded in a way I could not have imagined, in a way I've never really forgotten. It's a moment I mishandled and one I've regretted ever since. Excuse me, Leonard? Yes. I'm Tom Rinaldi. What's up? I'm a reporter with ESPN, Leonard. No, this was another guy who gave you a call, Leonard. Listening back to it now, I sound so nervous. And I was. I even said my own name awkwardly. Not that it mattered to the man I was talking to. The man who murdered Lyman Bostock. I don't want to talk to you. I have no comments. Thank you. Goodbye. Leonard. Goodbye. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and the story of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley. The story of the life, career, and death of Lyman Wesley Bostock. wanted to kill him. He's lucky he didn't get killed. It's the biggest miscarriage of justice that I personally have ever written about. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. I just gave up trying to figure it out the lies. He had to live the rest of his life in hell. And I don't know to this day that he thinks that he committed a crime. He laid and waited. Wrong place at the wrong time. It was cold-blooded murder. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. 
formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Episode 7. Hello, Leonard. All rise. Lake County Criminal Courthouse, November 1979. When Judge James Kimbrough prepared to read the verdict to all gathered in the chamber, the room grew quiet. Most had a clear expectation of what they would hear. In the case of the State of Indiana versus Leonard Smith, charged with the murder of the California Angels star, Lyman Bostock, a case that included eyewitness testimony directly identifying Smith as the killer, and a case in which the defense never denied that Smith had fired the shotgun blast that took Bostock's life, most thought Smith would be spending decades, if not the rest of his life, in prison. That's not what happened. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I understand you've reached a verdict. And the four-person, yes, we have, Your Honor. The court hereby renders the verdict on count one, murder. We, the jury, find the defendant not responsible by reason of insanity. That's Jack Crawford, who prosecuted the case and knew what the verdict meant. Not guilty by reason of insanity. Leonard Smith, overcome with jealousy and anger toward his estranged wife, was not responsible for his actions the night of September 23, 1978. And so, not legally responsible for killing Lyman Bostock. Shock, shock in the court, even amongst the court staff. A thought that this is not good for our community This is not justice. The jury at that time, they did not know what the result of a not guilty or not responsible by reason of insanity verdict would be. They they may have thought that this person goes to a mental institution for the rest of his life. And that probably would have been some fairness in the case. I think they might have been surprised that this guy could be back in the community in three months. There seemed no way to add to the pain that Lyman's family was already feeling. But this created a different kind of anguish. Carl Crawford was Lyman's cousin, who considered himself to be more like a twin. The two were born on the same day, in the same hospital, 
and often celebrated their birthdays together. Crawford was stunned. I thought that, you know, uh, that he was going to get the chair. I just thought that he was going to, right off the bat, he was going to get the chair. Why did you think that, Carl? Because it was cold-blooded murder. He, tr- he tried his best to kill his wife and kill someone else. And so, you know, and there was no and and the buzz about it. He knew what he did. He laid and waited. He laid and waited. He thought about it. He waited for that. And as soon as the opportunity that he got, that's when he did that final shot. Lyman's widow, Yuvine, had not attended the trial in person believing it would be too difficult on her emotionally to be there. She stayed back in Los Angeles, getting updates from the family. Every day was almost a low point. Yeah, he's not there. And my world and my life as I knew it was flipped upside down. It just changed everything. So that trial and my world at that time was like not a priority. When Yuvine heard the verdict, she was also stunned. But her mind went beyond that moment. To her, Leonard was a man who'd been accused of striking his wife and pulling a gun on her. He was a man who'd been subject to a restraining order in the weeks prior to the shooting. Part of me that thinks people have to be crazy to get to that point. My anger was that the situation was allowed to get to that point and the system failed. He should have been restrained. He should have been locked up way before. That should have never happened. I mean, he's he was the perpetrator, of course, and, you know, that bothers me, but it's so much bigger than the, than the person. Years later, Nick Theros, Smith's defense attorney, described his client's reaction to the verdict that shocked nearly everyone else. I think that Leonard felt that he was now, he was uh, vindicated. And I don't know to this day that he thinks that he he committed a crime. What he did, he was driven to do. It was not in his character to do this type of thing. He was, in fact, not guilty of, of, of the crime. By verdict, Smith was not guilty. He wasn't going to prison. But he wasn't going free either. Not yet. Instead, the court sent him to the Logansport State Hospital in Indiana for what would be 180 days of psychiatric evaluation to determine whether he should be permanently committed. At the time, Jack Crawford, who prosecuted Smith, told reporters he believed Leonard was dangerous and a threat to the community. He's not been convicted of murder, but technically he is a killer. And from all we know about Mr. Smith, we never truly felt he was insane, That's as we argued at the trial, but we always felt that he was a dangerous person. June 20th, 1980 was a bright and clear Friday morning across much of Indiana. It was a day Leonard Smith had been waiting for when he walked out of Logansport State Hospital, got into the back seat of his mother's car, and was driven away. Logansport Hospital official Ann Hansen told reporters the reason Smith was allowed to leave. We did not find Mr. Smith mentally ill. 
And by law, we may not keep as a patient someone who is not mentally ill. Less than two years after murdering Lyman Bostock, Leonard Smith was free, released, not remanded back into prison custody, but allowed back into society, free to live his life. To the jury that acquitted him, Leonard Smith was insane. But to the psychiatrist responsible for his release from an Indiana state hospital, he is not. The question legal authorities are asking, did Smith get away with murder? The reaction to Smith's release created an uproar. I feel that he's dangerous. And to let him out among people that are saying uh, anything can happen at any time. Years later, his defense attorney, Nick Theros, told me he didn't think Leonard was a danger to anyone. In your mind, when he left for Logansport, what threat, if any, did he pose? None. Why? Well, the problem that caused him to do what he did in the first place was no longer there. It was gone. Not, not Lyman Bostock. The relationship with his wife was gone. He had no... Uh, no intention of harming anybody. To many, the case was an outrage. Smith had beaten the system, using a legal loophole that allowed him, in the prosecution's view, to get away with murder. The Indiana legislature apparently held the same view. Less than six months later, a new statute went into effect. Instead of being judged not guilty by reason of insanity, a defendant could now be found guilty but mentally ill. Meaning, if an offender was no longer judged insane, he would not be sent home. He'd be sent to prison to serve the rest of his sentence. That change to Indiana law came as a direct result of Lyman's murder and Smith's case. Again, former prosecutor Jack Crawford. It was the beginning of a wave of that kind of legislation across the country, because shortly after that came the John Hinckley acquittal for shooting President Reagan. And, and just an attitudinal change across the country that there ought to be another option where a person could get mental health treatment, but still pay a price for their acts. And that became guilty but mentally ill. And it was passed by the Indiana legislature in uh, March of 1980, uh, about six months after the verdict. For Lyman's family and his friends, there was little comfort in knowing the law had changed, knowing the price Lyman paid for it to happen. To Lyman's family and Gary, his uncles, aunts, and cousins living there, Leonard Smith had killed the man they loved, admired, and adored. And Smith was now free. With that knowledge came a rage and a desire to act on it. This is Lyman's cousin, Roll Tap. We have family members who was prepared to do violence against the gentleman who did. This was a devastation to the family. One of us was lost in that way. This was a moment in time where you know, things can, repercussions can happen that you can just sense that this is the only way we can make things right. Because this was a 
travesty. It should have never happened. There were persons who were really looking to do harm to this gentleman. This person does not deserve to be allowed to live again. Despite any danger Smith might face of retribution from Lyman's family, Leonard Smith left Logansport and chose to return to the only place he'd ever lived, a place he called home. Leonard Smith came back to Gary. Our goal was to do what we believed nobody else had done successfully, and that was to hear from Leonard Smith about what happened that night And so there was a lot to find out. That's ESPN producer Willie Weinbaum. He's covered every type of event and story over his more than quarter century career at the network. And his work has earned him a shelf of prestigious awards and the respect of every one of his colleagues. Willie was the producer working on this story with me back in the summer of 2008. We'd traveled to Gary for a number of reasons, but most importantly, we were hoping to find Leonard Smith and talk to him at his home at 1511 Jackson Street. Leonard Smith lived a short distance from where he pulled the trigger and killed Lyman Bostock. And when we spoke with the police officers involved in the arrest of Leonard Smith, they conveyed to us almost with amazement that Leonard Smith matter-of-factly went home after killing this man as if nothing happened. And it's where he returned to live after being released from the Logansport State Mental Hospital back in 1980. 28 years later, he was still living in Gary in the same three-story brown brick apartment building, less than a mile from where he'd murdered Lyman. We pulled up outside the address, myself and our cameraman, Joe Jans. I put on a wireless microphone and prepared to wait for any sign of Smith. Our plan was, Tom, you stay with a camera crew outside the house. Willie, you go to the library with another crew. Willie is probably going to have success. Tom is probably going to fail. Not through any fault of Tom's, but because we had no reason to believe we would have any success in either encountering or hearing from Leonard Smith. We talked to neighbors and asked them to describe Leonard to give us an idea of what he looked like. A short time later, a man fitting that exact description pulled up in his blue Buick sedan, back from a trip to buy groceries. Excuse me, Leonard? Yes. I'm Tom Rinaldi. What's up? I'm a reporter with ESPN, Leonard. No, this was another guy who gave you a call, Leonard. His name is Jeff. I don't want to talk to you. I have no comments. Thank you. Goodbye. Leonard, watching and listening to the encounter back now, half of me wanted to meet Leonard. The other half, I suppose, hoped not to. So when we started off this way, with Leonard immediately telling me he wanted nothing to do with me, I should have been much better prepared to respond. 
I wasn't. Leonard, we talked to your attorney. I know he reached out to see if, if you... Do you understand? I do. Let, let me just... Goodbye. I'm through with you. L- let, me just, let me just say... No, I don't want to hear it. Goodbye. It's so obvious now. Why would he want to talk to me? Smith had been free for the last 28 years. After his first trial, he'd never spoken publicly to anyone about what happened the night he killed Lyman. And he certainly didn't want to talk to me about it, either. Do you have anything to say, Leonard, about what happened? Nothing. No comment. Nothing to say about what happened 30 years ago? You don't understand. You don't understand. As Smith got out of his car, I was struck immediately by his physical condition. He was 61 years old, wearing a blue bucket hat over long graying dreadlocks and had a gray beard. And he needed not one, but two canes to support himself. Can I help you here? No. Can I help you with your groceries, Leonard, is all? No. Are you sure? Yes. At one point, he dropped his car keys in the street. Leonard, let me get the keys. Let let me get the keys. Let me get the keys. Physically, every step he took was a struggle. He moved with an aching shuffle, hunched, limping. I'd had no idea what happened to him, if he'd suffered a stroke, if he'd developed a kind of palsy. But I persisted. Is there anything you can tell me, Leonard, about what happened that night? From your point of view, not to let somebody else speak for you, but from you directly, about why it happened. I almost sound like I'm pleading hearing it now. At this point, Leonard's grocery bag was on the roof of his car. He had canes in both of his hands. I had no idea how he'd get the groceries inside. So, I offered to help him. Leonard, I see that it's tough for you to move now. Let me help you, okay? No. Let me at least get the groceries of the bag on top of the car, okay? No. Leonard, look at me. It's hard for you to move right now. Come on now. Let me grab that bag. Can I do that? No. There were questions I wanted to ask him. I'd prepared to ask him. I didn't ask him a single one. He, he needs help. He needs help. He won't let me help him. I get his neighbor, a man named Terry, to help him carry the groceries in. And after several long, agonizing minutes, watching from across the street now, Leonard makes his way to the front door, opens it, and steps inside. For a moment, he peers at us through a column of glass to the left of the door, and then he disappears. I ended up offering to help carry some of Leonard's groceries to the door, trying to help the man who murdered Lyman Bostock. I don't know why, other than that it seemed like the only thing to do.
And I don't know why, as I stand here now, almost 14 years later. I wish the encounter had gone differently. I wish I'd handled it differently, with more clarity, with greater resolve, with something more. Whatever weight he carried, whatever guilt he felt for the crime he did commit, for killing Lyman, he never shared it. For Lyman's widow, Yuvine, Smith served a sentence not handed down by any court. He had to live the rest of his life in hell. So nothing that a prison or a court could do is going to take away his internal hell, what he has to live through every day. And I'm totally at peace with that because that's his issue and his life. And it certainly impacted mine, but I can't go through life being bitter or, you know, thinking about what his outcome was. Because in the end, it's not changing anything. The fact that he never reached out to you, to anyone in the family, to express remorse. Did anyone really expect him to? What was the expectation and who was it from and why? I certainly wasn't ever expecting. I'd rather not hear of him. He's, he's an, a non-entity to me. I understood Uveen's feeling, and it would always be different than mine, for reasons infinitely more personal and more painful. Still, I wondered, what became of Leonard Smith? How did he live the rest of his days? And who or what was inside 1511 Jackson Street as they stood there on a frigid winter day in 2022? There was only one way to find out. I think we ought to try to go in. It's open. next time on the conclusion of Wesley. I can't say it's the tragedy of it because there's so many, but like he had no business dying. Like he had no business dying. Lyman Bostock didn't do anything. He was just in a stupid car. That's what's so infuriating about it. There's no reason for him to be shot. That's next time on Wesley. Wesley is produced for Fox Sports Audio in conjunction with Blue Duck Media. It's reported, written, and hosted by me, Tom Rinaldi. Executive producers are Eric Shanks, Charlie Dixon, and me for Fox Sports. Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin for Blue Duck Media. Sound mixing and original scoring from Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Mike Goldstein. Audio field recording from Alan Chow. The terrific Jen Roman is our producer and production manager. Script consulting and research by the beautiful mind of David Sabino. Additional production and research from the quartermaster, Quincy Tucker. 
Production support from Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Ben Redman. Special thanks to Euvine Whistler and her family, the Lyman Bostock family, the incomparable Willie Weinbaum, Major League Baseball, and ESPN.